and welcome to Pause Pop, positively pop culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm K.W. Taylor. And I'm Carrie Gessner. This week, we're continuing our Carrie Watches Scary Movies by discussing Get Out and The Shining, as well as talking about horror fiction a bit more generally. But first, as a reminder, we're still conducting our listener survey, so look out for that in our show notes, and we also have it available as a link on our Twitter account at Pause Pop Podcast. Yes, please fill that out so we can shape our second year of the podcast, which starts in just two weeks. Yay! But now, on to our subjects for the week. Yeah, so I kind of wanted to talk about horror in a little bit of a general way. Maybe also our own experience with horror and both literary and film and television. So you're deliberately kind of making yourself watch scary movies and read scary things this month. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think this is your, this is not your genre, really, is it? That's correct. (laughs) I'm a big old scaredy cat. (laughs) I am too, even though I, I think I like it more than you. And I write some horror as well. But there's some horror that I don't, that I find too upsetting and I tend to avoid. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of, I think people think that horror is is necessarily gross or has a lot of like, quote unquote, body horror in it or things that are going to be visually disturbing. And it really doesn't have to. And I mean, horror has been around since ancient Greece. And I think too, that we forget that like things like Hamlet is considered horror and the very, very early versions of Dracula, which are really not very gross. But then we get into things like H.P. Lovecraft, which starts to get a little bit creepier and, you know, things like Psycho and um, Stephen King. And Mm -hmm. we do associate a little bit more gruesomeness with horror as the genre develops. But what is it about horror that you tend to be squeamish about? Is it the kind of gruesome element? Yeah, it really is. I don't like gore at all. Okay. So anything like slasher films, I just won't watch. Part of the reason I'm pushing myself to to watch more and and read a bit more is because, you know, that's obviously not the whole genre. And there are aspects of it I really like. I I like ghost stories and things like that. Mm -hmm. But even for the ones without a lot of gore in them, you know, I just don't love being scared for two hours. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and there are certainly like if we talk about film. There's something a little bit more visceral about watching something. And Mm -hmm. even sometimes a bad horror movie can get under your skin. I remember being really disturbed by the remake of the Amityville Horror from a couple of years ago, which was not good, but it was still (laughs) really upsetting. And But then at the same time, I also remember reading the novel version of The Exorcist and finding it so much more upsetting than the movie, because the movie, by the time I saw it, had dated a lot and it came off kind of goofy in places and really Mm -hmm. unrealistic. But the book was able to convey that stuff with complete realism because you're reading it and you're imagining yourself. Yeah. So normally, though, I think I generally prefer horror literature than film okay. because sometimes you can kind of like not skip over, but you can you can imagine a terrible moment as gruesomely or as not gruesomely as you wish. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're watching it, you're kind of faced with what's there. And sometimes that can be really upsetting. Mm-hmm. I've been watching more of Lovecraft Country, okay, and cool. I'm still a little bit behind, but a most recent episode that I saw had a very, very disturbing scene where someone loses their head, but I also, I didn't flinch from it because it looked super fake. Oh, Other things wait. in that show. I don't know if I got seen that it? episode yet. Oh, I'm sorry. Spoiler. No, that's But right. I didn't tell you who it happened to. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but other people like say, oh my goodness, this episode is particularly gruesome. This is gruesome. And 
I haven't been squicked out by that yet. Okay. There's things that are psychologically squicky to me that have mm-hmm. been more bothersome. Like I quit watching the show Nip Tuck because of just the idea of something that was kind of gross that wasn't even shown very closely just really creeped me out. So it's it's more like almost the suggestion of something that's upsetting, even if it's not particularly gruesome. Okay. So yeah. yeah, I understand. I I was going to say I think I have an easier time with terrifying ideas, but no, I don't because I watched <laughs> it out last night and I was like hiding under the blanket. <laughs> oh, oh, it's okay. No, well, no, we'll talk about it. I'm not upset. Like there are horror movies, and I I haven't read that much literature, so I can't really compare it to that. But um, uh-huh. there are horror movies that scare me but the experience is upsetting and then there are ones where that i'm scared and then i have that catharsis like in hill house and then i'm like okay i'm i'm fine but it, it wasn't an upsetting experience if that makes sense yes absolutely yeah i'm trying to think of i mean like there's there's certain stephen king novels where really sad things happen to people but if there's some kind of purpose behind it that's for a larger good or something and we can talk about that when we talk about the shining but but then there's other stuff where it seems less monumental and yet it's more it's more upsetting and i'm not i don't know where that line is so yeah, yeah i let's, think I would, we'd have to talk examples maybe yeah and i'm not i'm it's been a little bit since i've read a non-stephen king horror novel i used to regularly work with a writing group that people would write horror for and we knew it was a good story if someone said, well, that was upsetting at the end. Of it. <laughs> yeah. And so like there were there were bits in that group that still stick with me 10 years later. And I think that's if you can be inventive with something that is psychologically like troubling. Mm-hmm. And I can't I can have trouble thinking. Yeah, like examples are. But maybe let's yeah, let's transition to talking about Get Out, because I think that it has some of the hallmarks of well, we can say whether or not we think it's gruesome. I didn't think it was particularly gruesome, but but the ideas in it are super upsetting. So Right, yeah. So safe to say there will be spoilers for both Get Out and The Shining. Shining's super old, so probably you've seen it, but <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but just just in case you haven't, like like me, I haven't watched either of these until this past week. And I picked them because, you know, I'm trying to get more into the genre and just educate myself a little bit and see if there are aspects of it I like more than I thought I did. So I tried to pick, I picked one that's older and one that's newer. Uh-huh. And I don't, I don't see them as representative of their eras necessarily, but I very much not enjoyed. I preferred Get Out by a mile. Okay. So let, yeah, so let's talk about that first. And okay. if you haven't seen it, Get Out came out in 2017. It was written and directed by Jordan Peele. Daniel Kaluuya stars as Chris, the main character, and he is black and he goes to his girlfriend's family's house for the weekend. His girlfriend's played by Allison Williams. Her name is Rose and she's white and her family is all white. And he goes there for the weekend and, you know, it starts out just everything is kind of super uncomfortable. The parents are played by Katherine Keener and Bradley Whitford and... She also has a brother played by Caleb Landry Jones, whose character I was kind of really confused about. <laughs> but they spend a lot of the first night like trying to convince Chris that they're not racist. And they say things like, I would have voted for Obama for a third time <laughs> and things like that. 
so it's it was very much like microaggressions uh-huh. and then oh sorry i should say they have two black servants in the house georgina and walter i think but they chris gets this really weird vibe off them and there's more there that we will kind of explore later but the next day the parents throw this party and all these their white friends come and there's one black man and chris goes over to him and like tries to just tries to connect with him and be like hey isn't it isn't it super weird that like we're the only black people here and the the other dude just doesn't really respond in the way that chris expects him to so the the whole time this is going on he's getting like more creeped out and more creeped out and he takes tries to take a subtle picture with his phone of this guy and the flash goes off and the flash like triggers something in this guy whose name i can't remember i'm sorry i just watched it last night (laughs) (laughs) but this guy starts coming at him and attacking him and saying get out get out and his his voice sounds a lot like less weird than it had previously so chris is just like what is up what is going on everything is super weird here and we find out as viewers that the father bradley whitford stands up in the front of this party and like has a very creepy silent auction and what he's auctioning off is chris there's a picture of chris behind him and chris just has these weird vibes and he's like let's let's leave let's leave tonight so he tries to get his girlfriend to leave and the whole family converges on him and the mother we find out the mother has hypnotized him so she can like put him to sleep with the teacup <laughs> with the sound of a teacup <laughs> so he wakes up and he's down like in the basement tied to a chair because the whole family has conspired to get him here and the the girlfriend's grandfather has come up with this way of transplanting consciousness basically so they're auctioning off these black men and we find out that rose has done this before to their older white friends and transplanting their consciousness into these younger bodies and Mm -hmm. the explanation is given that you know the person inside is still there it's just like they this was terrifying it's just like they are stuck at the the bottom of this little hole and they can kind of see and hear everything that's going on but they have no control over everything which is why we find out that the servants were acting so weird Uh yeah and then it's up to chris to to get out of that situation and he has a best friend rod who's great and funny (laughs) (laughs) and heroic in his own way but it very much deals with you know the horror of of racism and it wasn't there were some gory moments so Uh like at the end when he's trying to escape and i that's when i was sort of covering my eyes and like during the brain surgery (laughs) but yeah it didn't really it's it's about an hour and 45 minutes and it didn't really get gory until like an hour and 20 minutes into it yeah and that's part of i think why it was scary for me because it unravels and it it seems idyllic and then every little thing that happens is like another thread unraveling until you're like oh this place is terrifying and these people are are awful and and cruel yeah, so that's that's the basic plot. But did you do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, no. Um, well, what, for one thing, I remember seeing this in this lovely local repertory movie theater, 
And it makes me sad that I can't go there right now. But anyway. (laughs) Yeah. I actually like Jordan Peele's second film, Us, better than Get Out. But Get Out is... Get uh, us is a little bit more gruesome, so if that does bother you, this is yeah. a better first entree into his okay. work. But that's what I figured. <laughs> yeah, and so it owes a lot to um, the Stepford Wives, which was originally a novel by Ira Levin from the late '60s, made into a couple of film adaptations. And in that, housewives are replaced by robot versions of themselves in order to make them be not feminists anymore, basically. <laughs> and so in this in this sense, they're they're appropriating black bodies to remove their own souls and personalities and put white consciousness in it. And that's upsetting and obviously very allegorical. The other thing that's upsetting is the, the idea that they are still stuck in there and they go to the, I think they call it the sunken place, mm-hmm. that that's their little place where their soul still exists, but they're completely subjugated and unable to do anything. And that can represent so many different things. So I really think of this film less as, I mean, it is a horror movie, ultimately. It plays with a lot of very traditional, especially from the, you know, later 20th century onward, horror tropes. But it it is very much this um, definitive allegory about race in America, and especially, specifically, Black people's appropriation by white people. And also the, the fact that seeming white liberals can actually be racist and part of racist systems, mm-hmm. whether they know it or not, or intend it or not. So it, I also think that it does talk about microaggression and the culmination of microaggression quite a bit. I've started watching this Hulu show called Woke, which is about a black cartoonist who is a victim of a profiling incident by the police, and it causes him to become very politically active when he hadn't been before. And there are some strong similarities there with a recent episode of that and this this film. So I think it's a really, it was a definitely a groundbreaking moment in cinema and, mm-hmm. and entertainment largely to start really, really talking about race again in ways that make it clear that there's still definite problems and inequities going on. So I think it's very useful, even if you're not a horror fan. But I think that doing it in the guise of a horror film is is genius because unlike just straight drama or even comedy, it's going to bring people in that may come for the horror, but they are going to get sort of educated along the way. But also using a, a genre like horror underscores the the dire nature of the problem mm-hmm. in a way that other genres can't really do. I agree. And I, I mean, I did, I did really like the movie. I don't know if I will ever watch it again, because <laughs> <laughs> but one of the reasons I liked it and I like Lovecraft Country and also Hill House was that I felt like there were bigger things that it had to say uh-huh. versus just trying to scare you. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought one of the things that I thought it was trying to point out too was the complicity of white women. Uh-huh. I So I wasn't totally spoiled, but because it's been out for three years. So I like yeah. kind of knew a little bit about it. Uh-huh. And I didn't trust the girlfriend from the beginning. I was just, <laughs> but like, she's meant to be trustworthy and she's cute mm-hmm. and she's funny. And, mm-hmm. you know, she, she appears to try to, you know, soothe him and be on his side and like, yeah, my parents were totally in the wrong. And like, we c- let's just get out of here and stuff like that. But there's a switch that flips mm. during that car key scene 
It was terrifying, honestly, because she goes from crying to just cold. Mm-hmm. And like the mom wasn't as bad for me because, you know, she's creepy from the start and the whole teacup <laughs> thing. She tried, she's a psychiatrist and they have this whole thing in the beginning where she got her husband to stop smoking in just one session mm-hmm. and she like stealth hypnotizes Chris in the same way. And she's like stirring this teacup. So the, the sound of the teacup is like what kind of triggers him. But um, like her, her complicity wasn't as scary to me because it was a little bit more expected mm-hmm. because she's of the older generation. And, you know, she had been in that situation of knowing everything that was going on and, and helping. But mm-hmm. the daughter, Rose, that was surprising to me, but very, very meaningful. Mm-hmm. because she knows better and she still chooses to participate in this thing so mm-hmm. yeah i just thought that was that was an important thing that it had to say and that i appreciated that it said it yeah and i want to also mention the casting of the family bradley whitford allison williams Catherine keener and even stephen root i think was the grandfather are all known for largely likable roles and that is completely on purpose yeah that they they didn't cast people who would seem menacing they might they might as characters seem menacing especially toward the end as as things go on but they you know they're oh that's that guy i've seen him he's great and Mm -hmm. Catherine keener was the indie film darling of the 90s and you know steven root is the guy from news radio and office space and like these are not menacing people Alison Williams was Peter Pan, for goodness sake. I mean, I like, know. <laughs> which I love her in. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that is absolutely purposeful. Like you have to have somebody who's going to be able to lure this poor guy in with perfect ability to be appealing. And I did feel like, I mean, yes, she's 100% complicit. But there is this sense of, oh, were we supposed to feel sorry for her because her parents are kind of making her do this. And it's, it's kind of terrible, but she clearly is fine with it. So it's a little, it's a little like saying that, I don't know, certain political daughters might be, oh, they're just doing it because that's what's expected. But no, they're probably really getting a benefit out of it. So right. I think that was important to show that she was not a victim, that she was cold, that she was doing this all very calculatedly. And that does make it scarier. Oh, I'm still thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, now you said you didn't like The Shining as much, but that is right. an older film. And I think if Get Out is speaking to racism, The Shining in many ways is speaking to a certain level of sexism and male aggression and rage. Yeah. I think there are a few a few reasons I didn't like it as much. One is that it's it's a lot longer than Get Out, so mm-hmm. part of it was just like not boredom, but like it just felt like it took a long time to to get places. Yeah, but Get Out, I really really liked Chris right from the beginning. He's just mm-hmm. he seems like a really nice guy, and he's put in this weird situation. And honestly, from the first moment, from the first scene in The Shining, I really didn't like Jack, mm-hmm. and I couldn't quite pinpoint why but very quickly not in the first scene but very quickly you learn that from his wife Shelley Duvall whom I got confused with Shelley Long and I was like that doesn't look like the lady from (laughs) Cheers 
No. <laughs> Too different. Yeah. <laughs> Both Shelleys, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My brain sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you find out from her that he used to be an alcoholic, and at one point it was so bad that he, like, dislocated their son's arm. Mm-hmm. And he just doesn't treat her well. So for me, and I was thinking about this when I was watching it, because I hadn't yet watched Get Out, but I had watched The Haunting of Hill House. And the reason The Haunting of Hill House was successful for me personally was I really felt connected to most of those characters. And I felt for them and I wanted them to, you know, get through this okay. But with him, I was just like, oh, I hate you <laughs> right from the beginning. <laughs> so there was no, like, connection with the protagonist. Yeah. And I think that's something that, for horror in particular, it might mm-hmm. be something that I need just because the trappings of horror don't always pull me in. It's, like, yeah. the character who pulls me in, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And let's we can get into this. Like, this is something that I've read the novel that it's based on. I've seen the film many times, and there's even okay. a miniseries adaptation also. So to give a little bit of background, this The Shining, you saw the 1980 version, I take it. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So this was released in 1980, directed by um, Stanley Kubrick, who is one of the auteurs of the later 20th century cinema, based on a Stephen King novel from 1977, and stars Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall as the husband and wife, Jack Torrance and Wendy, his wife, and they have a young son, Danny. And the whole premise is that he is, he's a struggling novelist or playwright and um, teacher, and he gets hired to work as the winter caretaker at a hotel that is largely cut off from everybody else during the winter because of heavy, heavy snowfall. And the caretaker has to be on site to um, do particular maintenance and make sure that the boiler doesn't explode and all this stuff. And so he brings his wife and child with him. He's thinking, oh, this will be a piece of cake. I'll just get a bunch of writing done, which I feel like that's what all of us went into quarantine thinking. Right? Yeah. <laughs> this may not be the best thing for you to have watched during the pandemic, honestly. <laughs> it's probably good that you didn't watch it at the beginning when, when you had to work from home yourself. But I yeah, know, it's, right? very, it's very claustrophobic and stuff. But I think one of the, one of the things that Kubrick was doing was making a film that had no likable hero and was a lot about visual symmetry, unsettling imagery, moments that had you questioning your own sanity as the viewer. And it was very much less about actually adapting the novel for its own sake. And we, I'll right. get into the novel itself later, but I want to talk more about your, your reactions to it. So mm-hmm. if it didn't work as having a person to hang on to as you're you're in did it work on any level yeah and i I, i'm not saying i didn't have anyone to hang on to i liked well i felt badly for wendy Mm -hmm. so a lot of a lot of the time i was just like oh i hope she gets through this okay (laughs) the son was creepy but he was meant to be creepy Mm -hmm. i think I don't know. I mean, I don't have a lot of film theory. I took one film class in college and it was on the blockbuster. Mm. And that's where I first watched The Exorcist, actually. And the only time I watched The Exorcist. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think what I enjoy about film is the same thing I enjoy about novels, too. I like connecting with the character or seeing where a journey takes a character and trappings like 
you know, foreshadowing or imagery are really cool, but they don't necessarily make a story for me or make the mm. experience. So I think it just sort of left me a little cold in that respect, because I could tell that it was well done and that he was very into imagery and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But for me, that doesn't mean a lot when it's not connected to a protagonist or a storyline that I am invested in. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. And that's part of why Stephen King hates this adaptation. <laughs> yeah, um, I did read that. Yeah, it's it's faithful enough that if it had been maybe cast differently or directed differently, that you could have still had a very similar, you know, adaptation that that was that level of faithfulness. Mm-hmm. But he did take the human element way out of it. And Jack Nicholson as a performer is sort of like he he's a very he's he's a certain kind of personality and that's what you're mm-hmm. going to get and if you direct him in a way that it's a very menacing character that amplification of how he tends to act can be really off-putting and it causes you even if he's playing a hero or an anti-hero that you're just like not going to really sympathize with him and the same thing kind of with Shelley Duvall where she's a little bit more of a stereotypically cast as a weaker character and um, her most famous other role was as olive oil in a live action Popeye movie. So that's okay. kind of her thing is is nervous women that are not very strong characters. So again, I'll get into the novel and the other adaptation a little bit. But mm-hmm. in terms of some of the the things that make this film a classic, I think, are that by taking away some of the elements that that make it have a cohesive plot, because essentially it is a ghost story, right? They, they're they find that the hotel is haunted by either actual ghosts or at least echoes of past events that happened there that were upsetting. And the mm-hmm. previous caretaker had also killed his family because Jack eventually goes insane enough that he starts to chase his family down and seem like he's going to try to kill them. And so the ghosts and the, the presence of these sort of loops of time that exist in certain parts of the hotel, it's kind of a study in do do recorded events by themselves taken out of their original context when we view them again? Do they have a horrific impact just by their being replayed when they shouldn't be? And so in some ways, this is a movie about movies. It's a movie about if you take bits of films out of their context and watch them, does something about their being pulled out of time, maybe, or pulled out of space, or shown knowing that the people in them are dead like is that upsetting and i i found myself like sometimes if i'm watching something really really old i get caught up in the fact that oh these people are all no longer alive and that's kind of sad and it puts a little bit of a pall over it even if it's not supposed to be a sad film Mm -hmm. and i think kubrick was just the type of filmmaker that didn't necessarily like people or actors very much but he liked (laughs) movies (laughs) okay So if you look at it like that, it's not going to be an effective horror film of the type that will connect with you emotionally, cause you to care about the characters and give you any sense of catharsis. It is Mm -hmm. an exercise in observation and a meta-narrative on filmmaking. Which is cool. Just not my thing. (laughs) Right. It's cool, but it's also, like, even though I really like this film, I also really see its drawbacks. It is not for everyone. So I do want to go back to the novel a little bit. The novel Mm -hmm. makes Jack a lot more likable. He's much more relatable. It's in his point of view a lot. He is nowhere near as 
over-the-top creepy as Jack Nicholson, which makes it scarier when he does lose his mind. Mm-hmm. Wendy is also a self-actualized, quote-unquote, normal person who is, in effect, the heroine of the second half of the novel when Jack goes crazy and she saves their son. So Stephen King, when he was frustrated by Kubrick's adaptation for years, he was like, this wasn't what I want. This is not what I meant. He commissioned his own miniseries adaptation from 19... Hang on, 1997? Yeah, 97. And it's... It's got some cheesiness problems with it because it is a TV movie and it's made in the late 90s. But it casts Steven Weber as Jack. And Steven Weber was known for being a comedic actor on sitcoms. He was very likable. He had that same sense of when he loses his mind, you actually care because that wasn't really who he was as a character. And he casts Rebecca DeBornay as Wendy, who is like the antithesis of Shelley Duvall as an actress. She's very beautiful. She's very headstrong. She plays a lot of strong characters. And so you get a lot more invested in her and she does not act as much of a victim as the Wendy in the film does. So for me personally, as an adaptation of what the story was really trying to say, I much prefer this other version. Okay. But as a piece, as a piece of historical filmmaking and, and visual art, the Kubrick film is kind of, you have to almost think of it as its own thing. Mm-hmm. I had read the novel first in college and then saw the Kubrick film and was like, ooh, that's not... And then, and then I saw the miniseries toward the end of my college life, and I was, I was very reassured that it's possible to make a faithful adaptation of okay. it, even though... But I haven't read or watched the newer um, Doctor Sleep as a sequel with Danny all grown up. Right. I haven't either. Yeah. And I think I want to try to read that and watch that. But the, the thing that's interesting about... The film is people, the original film, people interpret it wildly differently and think that it's layered with all this conspiracy theory imagery. And there's been documentaries made about that. And so it's, it's fun to interpret it, but I don't know that it's fun to watch it. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. I was sitting there and I was just like, is this, do people think this is fun? Do they have fun doing this? <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it's, I think it's one of those movies that, it's it's quasi-fun in that once you've seen it a few times, it's sort of nice to revisit it, I guess, to, to notice new things. And again, it's fun to ruminate on, like, people interpret a lot of things about the pattern of the carpet that's shown or... Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it, gets, it gets really granular. And that's interesting, but it's also, at a certain point, you may want to ask, like, what is, what is the piece ultimately saying? And I think both... Both adaptations and the novel all ultimately do say that there is something upsetting about male rage and that Mm -hmm. terrorizing one's family, even if it's coming from some external influence like either alcoholism or or ghosts or whatever it is, the effect is still the same that you're going to either lose your life, lose their lives, and that one of the most scary things is someone kind of breaking mentally and and kind of terrorizing people in a violent way so is it a is it a ghost story is it a slasher film is it a domestic horror film it's kind of all of those yeah that makes sense i do want to say that i didn't find wendy i i mean i feel like you really don't like her in in this movie and and i didn't find her too bad i mean i do think she was integral in getting danny out of the hotel and and then danny obviously saved himself in a way too but yes. yeah, I didn't think she was, well, honestly, the whole movie, like every time something, Jack would do something weird or mean or be mean to her or whatever, 
Mm-hmm. I was I said to my roommate, I was like, just leave him. Why doesn't he she just leave him? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, they were stuck in in Colorado with snowed in roads where <laughs> no one yeah. could get through. Yeah. So yeah, I, I've probably she was the one I connected with the most because I, I really felt for her situation. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm glad, you know, it ended well well as well as it could for her and Danny. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I would be interested in in seeing the miniseries, or I don't know if I if I'm ready to read the book, but in seeing how differently she's portrayed there, yeah. And I also want to say that I can recognize that Stanley Kubrick's version is important in the grand scheme of of filmmaking and everything, mm-hmm. but I don't have to like it, and that's okay. Right? Oh, that's a hundred percent okay. Yeah, I didn't mean to. No, for sure. No, like, no, I'm not. I... I'm just. I didn't think you were accusing me of that i'm just putting it out there for other people because yeah you know there there are things that are really important to certain genres but you don't have to like them and that's fine you don't and i think i think one of the important things about doing any kind of cultural criticism is knowing your purpose in consuming something positioning it contextually and you can pass qualitative judgment on it in terms of you know its artistry and even your own personal taste and i think that's 100% 100% valid, believe me. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things like if I was if I was actively teaching a class on horror film, I would totally show this. I would absolutely show this, but I wouldn't necessarily assume that my students would all like it for its own sake extent from its influence, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I think you would actually even though it is cheesier, you would totally enjoy the miniseries version. <laughs> Okay. It's cool. Less creepy. It's more relatable, and you suddenly are like, "Oh, well, this is why she's still with him because he didn't. He wasn't that bad in the beginning." <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> okay. Cool. I will have to check that out. Yeah. All right. Well, next week it's our one year anniversary. We've got a ton of surprises for you, so watch your feed. Our theme music is by Joseph McDade. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Gessner, and you can find me on Twitter at KW Taylor Writer. And you can find us together on Twitter at Pause Pop Podcast, where you can also find the link to our listener survey. If you want to email us, you can do that at positivelypopculture at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy and safe. And join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop. <laughs> <laughs>